showers had begun to fall and the weather had begun to turn, as General Robert E. Lee made haste toward Amelia, Virginia, where food supplies would be waiting in train cars. It was April 4th, 1865, just a handful of days before he would surrender to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. Of course, a constellation of events would lead to his eventual surrender, but perhaps one of the most significant came when he arrived at Amelia. Jay Winnick writes, Managing the retreat, the stoic Lee himself made it across the Appomattox only on the morning of April 4th at 7.30 a.m. Like his men, he had scarcely slept since leaving Petersburg and Richmond. But this morning, his hopes and their hopes rose, rose at the stirring thought of the relief waiting for them in Confederate boxcars. Those cars would sit on the Danville line at Amelia. Here would be the sorely needed rations. Several hours later, around midday, Amelia itself came into view. A sleepy village of unpaved streets with houses neatly tucked behind tumbled roses and weathered fences and a few small shops converging around a grassy square. Lee raced ahead. His overarching interest was not in the scenery, but the rail line, where he would find the waiting commissary stores and the much-needed food. Upon locating the boxcars, he ordered them to be opened. This is what he found. Ninety-six loaded caissons, 200 crates of ammunition, 164 boxes of artillery harnesses. But no bread, no beef, no bacon, no flour, no meal, no hardtack, no pork, no ham, no fruit, no cornmeal, and no milk, no coffee, no tea, no sugar, not one single ration. A mere administrative mix-up over food, no less, threatened to do Lee in. Life is unexpected. I think we forget that. We plan our steps and we forget what the proverb says, that it's the Lord who directs them. Lee was surprised by a boxcar full of exactly what he didn't need. We come to 1 Kings chapter 17 this morning. In a similar way, we find the prophet Elijah given something unexpected. If you remember last week, Elijah burst onto the scene as God's man declaring God's word to the wicked Ahab. Ahab, who had installed uh, the worship of Baal, along with a plethora of other gods in Israel, such that the Israelites had become like the Canaanites that they had displaced. If you remember back further, uh, there was a united kingdom, all under David and under Solomon. But Solomon ignored the Bible's instructions for kings and gathered to himself guns, girls, and gold. Excessive gold, extravagant war horses, and many, many exotic wives. This was in violation of God's word. And so God's judgment fell upon Solomon and upon the united monarchy. It was divided in two. So that what we're dealing with in kings is a kingdom in the north, the northern kingdom that is ten tribes called Israel, and the southern kingdom in the south called Judah. And to make it complicated for us and to give us really long lists of kings to memorize, there are kings in the south and kings in the north, and the book of kings sort of jumps from one to the other to tell us the history of the people. And where the attention of the book is right now is on the kingdom in the north. 
The kingdom in the north sort of serves as a counterfeit to the kingdom in the south. It is only in Jerusalem that true worship is offered to God. And it is only because of God's promise to King David that Judah's light is made to continue burning. In the north, however, there is no light. It has gotten darker and darker and darker. Since Jeroboam first led a coalition of people out from underneath of Rehoboam's reign and played the part of Aaron, constructing, not one, but two golden calves for the people to worship, the northern kingdom has been declining. We came finally to, after a series of kings, to Omri, was sort of a Davidic counterpart, established his dynasty and security, bought the hill of Samaria, and yet the author's evaluation of him was that he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, and that he made Israel to sin. And finally, we come to Ahab, who is a sort of counterfeit Solomon, and is the worst of the worst. He thinks it is a light thing, no big deal, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Indeed, he takes to himself a foreign wife, Jezebel, and installs her foreign god, the aforementioned Baal. The people are worshiping. Jericho even is rebuilt, and there's this sort of reversal of the conquest. As the people that Israel was supposed to push out of the land, that they might live there as God God's holy, distinct people. Well, they've, they've not become holy and distinct. They've become like the land, like the people of the land. Instead of taking the land, the land has taken them. And so when Elijah shows up to confront Ahab, finally, in verse 1, as we saw last week, we expect things to go pretty well. We expect the march of the great prophet to sort of continue into the royal courts such that the idols are smashed beneath his feet and a great victory parade is begun. I don't know, like we expect like lightning to shoot out of Elijah's eyes through Ahab. We expect victory. God's man has showed up. God's word is on the scene. God's judgment is coming. And that, that should mean, we think, that the hero rides to victory. But when we come to 17 here, we find a boxcar of disappointment. A series of unexpected events. And what we learn, this is your main idea, is that the world works according to the word of the Lord. Life and death are in his hands. You can see your outline there, I have three parts, and one of them is bolded. We are only dealing with the bolded portion this morning, the first seven verses, because the main idea really hangs over this whole chapter and runs into the next. We see God's provision and his rule over the world when he provides Elijah with ravens who feed him, when he provides through the stores of a widow in Zarephath, and when he provides by way of raising a widow's son from the dead. Those are the three stories. We're going to concentrate on the first, but to allow you to have a full appreciation of what exactly is taking place in this chapter, I want to remind you of just why it is that God brings famine. Famine's going to show up, and we'll jump back to this, but I just want to make it really clear. The Canaanite god uh, Baal or Baal or Baal. I've heard it pronounced all three ways. I don't really know. So I might switch back and forth. I don't know that it matters. Um, he, he is a fertility god. And it is thought because he rides upon the storms and brings rain and water that he gives life and fruitfulness both to the land and to the womb. There's another god who's not mentioned explicitly here that the Canaanites worship. And his name is Mot. Mot is the god of death. And so there was this belief that, that Baal, 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 uh, and Mot, 
every, every cycle or season would sort of wrestle. And for a little while, Baal would submit to Mot. That was during the dry season. But then Baal would return and bring life and fruitfulness to the land. And so you have these two Canaanite gods, Baal, the god of life, and Mot, the god of death, in the sights of the only God who is. You see, what, what God is doing in this chapter is showing that he is the one who gives life, that he is the one who gives death, that he is the only true God, that it is he who is due exclusive worship, not these idols that the people have given themselves to. And so we will learn that the world works not according to the machinations of idols, but according to the word of Yahweh. With that in mind, let's pray and we'll get into the text together this morning. Father, we come to you, many of us, after a long week, we ask that you would refresh us with your word during this time. Many of us have sinned. We've all sinned. Pray that you would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we need you this morning as much as we ever have. Speak, Lord. Your people listen. Speak so that we might be strengthened. Speak so that we might have our hearts lifted up again. Speak uh, reminding us that you are the God of life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for these truths. We ask that you would carve the truth of your word onto our very bones. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Elijah shows up suddenly as if out of nowhere. And we have questions. Now we want to know who his parents are. What is his pedigree? Well, what are his credentials to be running around as God's prophet after all? I mean, what we expect is the usual sort of biblical formulation, you know. Joe Prophet was in his home in this land, and the word of the Lord came to him, and he called him, and he told him to do this, and so this prophet went and did this. We don't have any of that. Elijah just shows up, and he starts speaking very suddenly, and we are told very little about him. I mean, sure, he's from Gilead, but that's kind of an out-of-the-way place, and Tishbe is a town of such insignificance that some scholars argue it never actually existed. This is intentional on the part of the author. He doesn't tell us much about who Elijah is because that's not where he wants the spotlight. I think sometimes we can make the mistake of coming to the Bible and to these great stories of the prophet Elijah and putting all of our attention on the messenger instead of the messenger's God. Yes, we should imitate Elijah. We have much to learn from his life, but we miss the point if we fail to look beyond Elijah to the God whose word is in his mouth. Elijah is a representative of God, a bearer of God's presence and God's word. We are to look beyond him to the God who reigns and rules. And the author wants us to see that. He's not going to tell us much about Elijah so that he can put the spotlight on Yahweh. Friends, this is a good lesson for us. We ought to imitate godly men and women and follow them as they follow Christ. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. Imitate me. We ought to do that. But we get it sideways 
when we start to put our hopes and our faith in individual men and women. When we put too much stock in Christian leaders, we are posing a danger both to those leaders and to ourselves. Uh, To them, because they will be tempted toward self-conceit and pride and self-righteousness. And ourselves, because, well, unfortunately, Christian leaders often fall. Some fail morally in spectacular fashion. And others apostatize and forsake the faith. It is always a horrendous thing when a Christian leader fails. And it's always a terrible thing to have to talk to someone who has their faith shaken. I heard the gospel from so-and-so. Am I really saved if they've walked away from the faith? That man taught me so much about Jesus and he's fraud. Let us be careful that we do not wrap our hopes around Christian leaders. Yes, we want to honor them. Yes, we ought to imitate them. But no, we should never put our hopes in them such that our faith is shaken when they mess up. We need to keep our eyes on the one who sends the message rather than his messengers. Elijah shows up and he speaks the word of God. Our attention should be on God who is acting. And yet, he shows up and he shows up spectacularly, declaring war against Ahab and Baal. That's what this is, is the real one true God is declaring war against these false gods. Elijah is declaring war against Ahab. It is the beginning of a royal rumbaal. Yes, I worked hard on that one this week. But that's what we're going to see over the next few chapters. It's a battle between the false gods and the true God. And I just, Elijah is really bold here. He comes out of nowhere, shows up. He doesn't even say, it's not going to rain except by the word of the Lord. Did you see that? In verse 1, he says, except by my word. I mean, he's just brazen, right? And I do like to, in my mind, think about what this scene would have looked like. You know, where where Jezebel and Ahab out, you know, late at night, a really fancy restaurant, a sommelier is visiting their table, telling them about the wine options, and and in bursts Elijah, this, this brave heart looking dude, you know, real John the Baptist vibes. You all told me I looked homeless a few weeks ago. So, so you know, think of, think of that, just looking wild. And he says, it's not going to rain. God is shutting off Baal's utilities until further notice. It probably didn't go over very well. In fact, I know it didn't. If you just turn the page a little bit, you'll find that Jezebel is murdering the prophets of God. Charming woman, really. This isn't well received. And Elijah, I don't think, thinks it's going to be well received. And yet he speaks anyway. I don't want to sit down here for very long, but I do sort of want to pass by this application and point it out. It is important for us to speak God's word even when we know it will not be well received. It is more loving to tell someone the truth than to lie to them. And so we ought to pray that we speak God's word with boldness and kindness in the right place and in the right way and at the right time. Pray that God would give us a courageous spirit like that of Elijah. And so we come to this idea of rain. He says it's not going to rain, and we ask the question, why? I answered this a little bit earlier, but remember, Baal Baal, Baal, is the god of storms. And so, similar to what he does in Egypt, Yahweh is going to show that he's greater than Baal by turning off the water and drying up all the dew. And this does not come out of nowhere. 
This comes because God keeps his promises. And that means God keeps his curses. Remember, he told the people what would happen back in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 16. This is what he says, listen. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. It's spot on. Turn to other gods and I'm going to turn off the rain. You will endure the covenant curses rather than the covenant blessings. And even, it's interesting, even in these curses that are falling on the people because of their disobedience, there is hope for redemption. Because even these curses of God that are happening happening temporally are his kindness meant to lead his people to repentance. Like a parent taking a rod to the child or correcting them. Not doing that because you, you hate your kids when you correct them. You're correcting them because you love them. And you want them to turn away from destruction. Likewise, God's hope is, desire is, the design of his curse is that it would lead his people to repentance. This, what will be a three and a half-ish year drought, needn't be that long if the people will just repent. In fact, Solomon prayed for this. Do you guys remember back when we were in chapter 8, he establishes the temple and then he has that big long prayer. This is one of the things he prays for in verse 35, 1 Kings 8, 35. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because the people have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Yet the people love their sin. They love their false gods. Their hearts are hard, their necks are stiff, and their heads are pig-headed. They will not turn. Let's not repeat their mistakes. When we find that our lives are out of step with God's word, let's endeavor not to ignore that reality and play the part of hypocrites, or to come up with clever hermeneutics to justify our current behavior. No, rather, let us submit ourselves to God's word and repent. We should never be ashamed to repent. The devil would love to have you shamed at repentance and unabashed at your sin. And yet with God, it's precisely the opposite. We should be ashamed of our sin, and happy to run into the loving arms of our Father to enjoy his forgiveness. Let us repent at God's word. God's curse reigns, and the land will be dried up. Let's not miss the obvious here. God controls not only the rain, but the whole natural order. All of it. Winds, waves, the growth of flowers in the field, birds of the air. God animates everything. Elijah, in some way, is taking the people back and helping them to rehearse catechism. You know, question, who rules the rain? Answer, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, who brought us out of the land of Egypt with an outstretched arm and his mighty hand. Question, who rules the world? Answer, Yahweh alone. 
God rules over absolutely everything. God has, I like to think of it this way, it's almost as if God, when he created the world, enchanted it. He fills it with his power and his strength. Colossians tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ holds everything together. Acts tells us that it is from God that we get life and breath and everything. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Think about that. God holds you and this whole world into existence in the same way a singer might hold out a music note. It's incredible. Brothers and sisters, we are not deists. We don't believe that God created the world and then left it to run by itself. It's not like the world's tantamount to a television that you know you, you plug it in, you turn it on, you walk away, and it runs on its own. You don't have to do anything to it. The world is not a cold machine. No. God animates it. He rules it. I love the way John Piper says it. He says, the world is God entranced. God does not intend for us to look at the world that he has made and feel nothing. When the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, he does not mean this only for the clarification of our theology. He means it for the exaltation of our souls. God's involvement in nature is hands-on. Friends, we ought to see the world with wonder and worship the God who runs it. I don't know about you, but I'm so sort of prone to act like a materialist, as someone who doesn't really believe that God is there, to, to look out at the nat- natural processes as if they just happen on their own. But what did Psalm 104 tell us earlier? God causes the grass to grow. God feeds the beasts of the field. God takes their breath away. Friends, when a baby is conceived in the womb, this is not a mere biological process. God is knitting human being together. When you do see those plants peek their heads out in the spring and begin to bloom, this is not the consequence of a biological process of photosynthesis. Ultimately, underneath all of that, it's God at work. When you set your eyes on the horizon and see the magnificent pinks and oranges in the sky at sunrise, if you get up early for that sort of thing, or at sunset. You're not just looking at the way the world works. You're looking at the artistry of God. It's interesting, no matter where you are in the world, the sun is either rising or setting. So here's here's an application to try and help you see with wonder. Second easiest application I'll ever give you. The first is come to church. The second, this might be the second, I don't know if I'll remember, is this. The next time you put your eyes on the sky and you watch the sun set or rise, just think to yourself, God never stops painting. He's so full of joy. The work of his hands. See the world with wonder and worship. And don't, don't strangle your childlike amazement when you see the sky splashed with color. Don't get over the fact that seeds become plants that bear fruits. That's amazing. You ever seen an apple seed? You ever seen an apple? What? Don't, don't get over the fact that acorns become oak trees. It's incredible. I do love how Paul draws on this symbolism in 1 Corinthians 15. 
He talks about when we die or when we are changed, it's as if the body puts off what is mortal and takes on that which is immortal for the new heavens and the new earth. The same idea when we think about our future as those who have trusted in Christ. That this acorn of a body will be sown into the ground and will bear the fruit of resurrection by the power of God's spirit and God's promise. What an incredible God we serve. The world runs according to his word. Life and death are in his hands. That is such good news. He causes not just the grass to grow, but the hair on your head to grow or not grow. He's numbered the hairs on your head. He counts the stars and knows them by name. Spurgeon encourages us, saying, You may fear that the Lord has passed you by, but it is not so. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. He knows your case as thoroughly as if you were the only creature he ever made or the only saint he ever loved. God rules the world. From as you know, galaxies and the universe all the way down to atoms. His providence in all of creation in no way limits his knowledge of you or his involvement in your life. Indeed, we see him at work in the life of Elijah, whom he tells to hide, gives a boxcar of disappointment. This is unexpected. Verse 2, look. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Going east of the Jordan, you remember when they cross into the promised land, they cross the river Jordan. And so uh, Elijah is being sent out of the promised land across the river Jordan in the east. That's what's going on. And what we're going to see is that God is not limited by space. He rules in the promised land and he rules in the wilderness. He is God in the garden and in the desert. But we do have this question, why does Elijah hide? Two reasons. One we mentioned earlier. He is a wanted man, you know, an outlaw. Jezebel is hunting him. Later, Ahab will call him, you troubler of Israel. Right? Prophets are being murdered, and so makes sense that he would hide himself away, that the Lord would preserve his life. That's one reason, but it's not the primary reason. The primary reason is both more subtle and more obvious. <coughs> now I'm going to choke on the water. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll press on. We're going to try with another drink here. When Elijah goes away from the land, he is God's representative, the bearer of God's word and God's presence. When he leaves, it is God going silent. There is a famine not only of water, but of God's word. In Scripture, any time God goes quiet, it's judgment of the worst kind. I mean, you know this. It's not a good thing when you're not talking to somebody. I can remember being in grade school. I don't think it was that long ago, but I also don't know if anyone talks this way anymore. Uh, you would see a young gal and a young guy, and if they were into each other a little bit, you might say, hey, um, do you, uh, you know, Joe and Jane, are they, you know, are they, what's going on there? Oh, well, you know, they're talking. They're talking. And it, there was, that was sort of loaded. What that meant was uh, they are sort of deciding whether or not they're going to become girlfriend and boyfriend. Now, if you're, if you're in the talking phase, that's a pretty good place to be. But then you also have the flip side of that. Uh, you'd say to your friend, hey, 
oh, you know, Dane and Joe, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen them together in a little while. What's, what's going on? There? Oh, they're not talking anymore. The interest has been turned off. It's never a good sign in any relationship when one party stops listening and another party stops talking. God going silent is a sign of his judgment. He's giving the people over to what they want. Sort of the passive expression of his wrath we see in Romans 1. It is unfortunate. When we, I think when we read this, we go, okay, word is taking away. But we don't really find this as a, a big deal. In fact, we think, I have you know, plenty of Bibles at home, lots of access to God's word. But that's, that's not really what the text is getting at. It's getting at really hearing and knowing God's word. So God speaks to us in his word, but we need the spirit to hear. When we ignore, reject, or rebel against God's word, we are hardening ourselves to it, distancing ourselves from him. I mean, same, it works in your marriage if you're married the same way. If you don't listen to your spouse, it's going to create distance. We are distancing ourselves from him. And eventually, if we don't listen to him, if we rebel against his word, he stops speaking. To hear God's word, to know God's word, means listening to it and obeying it. We shouldn't take for granted our relationship with God. Friends, let's make sure that we do not ignore his word, that we are having our ears open to scripture such that it changes our hearts, that we are becoming more and more like Christ, more and more in practice what we've been declared by our faith in Christ. We've been declared holy, and now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we try to live in light of that. We have been made new, and so we try to live as new people, people that are citizens not of the world and of the darkness, but people that are citizens of heaven. We are no longer followers of the devil. We are followers of of the once crucified and now risen king. Live differently. A famine of God's word is a terrible judgment. And it is a judgment I think we even see today. Friends, there are churches across our country that gather under the banners of crosses, Various flags. They even have Bibles in them. But God's word is not preached. God's word is not submitted to. They are under judgment. Let's pray that God would never bring that sort of judgment here. Let's thank him that his word is preached here and has been for some time. Let's pray that I and David and Mike and Dan and anyone else we would have in this pulpit would preach God's word, not our own creative ideas. It's God's word that gives life, and it's God's word that rules the world. And it's God's word that's taken away from the people in judgment while Elijah hides. God sends Elijah into hiding, and he cares for Elijah. Verse 4, You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. This is weird. We studied Leviticus. You'll remember in Leviticus, God says ravens are unclean. They're an abomination. Like, God hates ravens. And then Elijah's in trouble, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to send some ravens to help you. You're carrying birds. They're going to feed him? I'm going to tell you why next week I think ravens are sent. You can just think about it this week if you want. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. 
and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. It's another boxcar of disappointment. I don't know that Elijah loves this setup. There's still famine in the land, but he's east of the Jordan River by this brook. His life is in danger, and he's having food brought to him by carrion birds. This is not, you know, filet mignon. Not chicken nuggets. This is ravens, they like fly around dead things, and they pick up the flesh and they, they bring it. They're also bringing in bread. I don't know if that's like, I always think, this is probably wrong, but you know how you feed the geese sometimes? You know, you get that loaf of bread out there feeding the geese. And this picture ravens picking up that sort of bread. I don't, I don't know. They could have brought him fresh loaves for all I know. They're bringing him bread and food, but it's, it's not great. This isn't a DoorDash situation. You know, Elijah doesn't have his feet up, and he's like, I guess the, the app would be called like Raven, you know, he's ordering food on his smartphone in the shade, you know, just, just hanging out. That's not what's going on here. And this is a time of distress and difficulty. Notice, notice who put him in this time of distress and difficulty. He didn't end up there by accident. God's people never do. God put him by the brook into difficulty on purpose. He does this throughout biblical history. Israel goes into the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And and God is doing many, many things in the wilderness, in these times of difficulty. But there is one thing I think that he is always doing. He is always showing us that we can trust him more. That we can trust him to provide. He is refining our faith so that it becomes more and more certain. He takes Elijah to the brook. And he sends ravens. Makes me think of our scripture reading this morning. Remember Matthew chapter 6? Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God provides for his people. He will send ravens. You can trust him. When you are in the wilderness, when you are down by the brook, when you are in the valley of the shadow of death, God will send ravens. In fact, if you're familiar with Psalm 23, you have the same sort of process here. We hear, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He lies me down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And then there's a shift. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Did you ever notice this? How, how did the sheep, David, how did the sheep get into the valley of the shadow of death? Well, he's following the shepherd who leads him beside quiet waters and in green pastures. And the same shepherd leads him into the valley of darkness. And the reason that he is just as safe in the valley of darkness as he is in the green pastures is because the shepherd is with him. Friends, God will lead us to difficulty. He will lead us into suffering. It never comes to us by accident. And he will keep us through suffering. He will sustain us through difficulty. 
he will send ravens. We can trust God to send ravens to us in this life because he has provided for us, not through ravens, but through his only son. He gave to us his only son to die on the cross in our place for our sins so that we might not have to suffer under his righteous wrath in hell forever. He makes provision for our sin debt. He pays the cost. The son, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. And as Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Sort of like if you went to a jeweler and bought a diamond. You wouldn't hesitate to ask that jeweler for a paper bag to put it in. Friends, God has given us the diamond of the gospel, the precious jewel of relationship with Christ. He will not withhold the paper bag. Elijah is alone by the brook and in distress. And God sends ravens. It is likely that many of you, like me, are feeling a little tired and a little spent this year. We have had many recent deaths of brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe you feel like you have had enough of it all. You've had enough tragedy, enough earthquakes, enough sickness, enough cancer, enough hurricanes, enough infertility, enough infant death, enough loneliness, enough depression, enough trauma, enough broken relationships, enough funerals. You've had enough boxcars of disappointment. And you are ready to surrender. Feel like you are ready to die by the brook. Friend, take heart. Your God has brought you here. And he will send ravens. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus is with you and he will see you through to the very end. Jesus Christ always comes through. He is going to come through today. He is going to come through tomorrow. And he is going to come through every day after that into eternity. Don't forget it. We are so prone to carving our sorrows in marble and writing our joys in the dust. We're so prone to engraving our trials on steel, and recording our blessings in the sand. Friends, God has been good to you again and again and again. Keep records of his provision. Let the ravens of the past ready you to welcome them as they bring the bread and meat of the future. You don't have to set up stones like the Israelites did. Maybe just make a note to yourself in your phone on a piece of paper that you can hang on the refrigerator. Well, maybe if you're into taxidermy, you get some ravens and taxidermy. You know, pin the notes to them. That might be a little weird, but hey. God is faithful. Remind yourself of his past faithfulness as you trust him with future faithfulness. He will send ravens. Until he doesn't. Verse 7 and after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. God's going to provide for Elijah again, but he doesn't always. I'm certain there are plenty of faithful Israelites in the land 
to whom God sent no ravens and who died. And their responsibility was to continue to worship God. He does not make his people immune to suffering. And he will sustain our lives. He will provide until his work is finished in us. It was Whitfield who said, we are immortal until God's work is done. And so as we celebrate Dale's life later today, I want you to remember that. He's gone not because God stopped providing, but because God's work in him was complete. And friend, one day for each one of us, the brook will dry up. And the ravens will stop coming. But even then, God will not stop providing. He will take us to that great river that makes glad the city of God and set a table before us. Not in the presence of our enemies. Their smoke will be filling the sky. But in the presence of the bridegroom. As we raise our glasses in worship, as we toast his victory over sin and death and sorrow, And we remind each other of all the times God sent ravens. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We do not deserve to call you Father. We deserve to be crushed as your enemies. But you have resolved to love us still. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died so we could be forgiven of our sins and is risen so that we can be free from death. We thank you for all the promises of the gospel that are ours in him. We thank you that to be absent from flesh is to be present with you. We thank you that until we cross that great river of death, and enter into the city of life, that you will provide for us every step of the way. Thank you for the ravens. And thank you for the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.